0: I was like a college student and had no money. And this was my one chance to do this thing. So I was like, well, I'm tough. I'm from Alaska. I can do this. Again, bad idea. (laughs) It was like (laughs) gale force winds blasting volcanic ash. And so it's just like grit in your skin. Sometimes it was so windy. I literally just had to lay down on the ground. Um, And this went on like for days.
1: That was photographer Acacia Johnson. And this is part two of my conversation with her. In part one, she talked about subverting the stereotypes of what it means to be an explorer, and also what it means to represent landscapes through photography. In this next part, Acacia talks about creating a record of stories, of people and of place, and how, through photography, she has the opportunity to start important conversations about polar regions, about the people who live there, climate change, and ultimately, the lessons we can learn from it. So here's the second part of my conversation with Acacia Johnson. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So in a lot of ways, the type of photography that you do, I think, can be described as having or starting a conversation. Was there a time when you realized that the photos you're taking are starting important conversations?
0: I think it was after I came back from that winter in the Canadian Arctic when I realized, like, I have photographed things that I think not a lot of other people have seen. And I think that, that telling the stories about what life is really like in the Arctic is really important. I mean, if we don't understand what places very far away and, and different from us are like, then how are we going to care about the Arctic, the forefront of climate change? I think we really need to see things to care about them. And when places and issues and events seem far away from us, or we think that they don't apply to us somehow, then we don't care. And so I think photography is really important and kind of like all hands on deck in a way. The more voices, the better in helping people to really care about about issues going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you ever learned something about a subject or a landscape after taking a photo? Like the photo has been taken, you're sitting there, and now you're looking at it and considering everything about it.
0: Um, and we'll touch more on this later, I think. But I, I kind of have two modes that I work in when I'm photographing. Um, one of them is, is very, very slow with a large format camera. And at that time, working in that way, I often feel pretty sure about a photo when I take it. Because I feel like I kind of let, this sounds super cheesy, but I don't take a photo until unless I truly feel that that is the right one. But working digitally, especially in a more journalistic sense, the photos, the right images definitely reveal themselves in retrospect. And often it's not the ones that I think were the photos I was trying to take.
1: I've heard this expression before about photography. And I'll probably butcher it. But in my mind, (laughs) when I'm thinking about it, it goes something like, you know, don't worry about missing a shot, because chances are it'll happen again. And so if you wait long enough, whatever you thought you missed, you'll have a second chance or a third chance. What do you think about that?
0: Well, it depends very much on what kind of photography you're doing. If you have a a shot list (laughs) that's there are times when you need to be ready for a shot but the way that I work is typically not like that especially with my personal work it's more of like an intuitive thing of kind of visual listening I like to think so even if I don't get the pictures that I had hoped to get or thought I wanted to get the pictures that I do get are the right ones And I usually feel pretty certain about that by the end.
1: I kind of want you to explain visual listening, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah. When I work on personal projects, I really like to have a lot of time and, you know, spend a lot of time with people, with places, and not need to take photos all the time or even very much. But listening to stories And just paying attention until I sort of feel like the right time and right moment is there Mm -hmm. Um, and and making photos at that time. And to me, that visual listening is a a term that I I wrote down in a notebook years ago. I don't know where it came from, but that's what I think of when I think of working in this way. Intuition. Yeah, working intuitively and, you know especially if you're working in a place that is not your home and it's not your your culture even i think waiting for people who want to tell their stories to you and share their worlds with you is the to me the most kind of honest way to work
1: how important is is patience to your line of work
0: patience is incredibly important Patience, intuition, and kind of trust, trust on so many levels, Um, trust, like with the people that I meet and may photograph, and also trust in the process. I'm not sure if you're familiar with large format photography, but um, you definitely can't see if the image came out until, in my case, maybe months later. And so you're just trusting that the camera has captured it and that you have that image. Um, and there, there is a little bit of a sense of magic for me in that unknown, trusting the unknown and working into the unknown, sometimes without like a very defined plan, but with like an eye for things and being open to stories and images that may come.
1: And so that was one of your modes that you work in, what would, what is the other one?
0: <laughs> the other one is more like journalistic where I'll be thinking about, um, a very specific storyline of something often that has some urgency. Um, in the past two years or so, I've been doing a number of stories surrounding the proposed pebble mine, um, on the Alaska peninsula mm-hmm. and telling the stories Of places that might be impacted by that, and typically in those cases, um, if I'm thinking about a journalistic audience working digitally, so it's it's much faster. You can have a lot more to work with, and it's fun. It's like a fast-paced adventure, (laughs) and I definitely enjoy it. And that's one of the times when you know I take just so many pictures that the right pictures. Often come in like moments of reflection afterward.
1: So you've you've traveled to, let's see, I have it written down here. It is fifty different expeditions you've gone on. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I've over fifty-five expeditions to the Arctic and Antarctica. Yep. Yeah.
1: And in that time, have you personally witnessed any effects of climate change?
0: Yes, definitely. I I don't think that. Five or six years is um, necessarily enough time to witness like large scale changes, but like certainly, um, I remember growing up in Anchorage, we used to do field trips to see Portage Glacier and those boat tours that they used to have there. Um, mm-hmm. And that I don't think that glacier goes down to the water anymore, or, the, or that is no longer a thing. Things like that, I, I really notice in in terms of those expeditions in Antarctica in um, in the late summer season, so that would be like February and March, there's a lot of snow algae. And so the landscapes will be covered with like this sheen of like pink or green that's very beautiful and very unsettling all at the same time because that's a result of, of warmer temperatures. And then certainly um, <laughs> sea ice is of course the huge thing yeah um i visited many communities in the canadian arctic and in in greenland during my work as a guide and um just the other year we had a woman from greenland come on board and in west greenland and tell us about how in her community different kinds of fish are now migrating there that nobody knows exactly how to catch or you know it's they're, they're not, the animal migration patterns that people rely on are changing, um, which is really alarming. And in Arctic Bay, or Iqipi the community uh, where I photographed a lot in Canada, um, the instances of people needing to be emergency rescued from breaking sea ice um, has really shot up in the last couple years.
1: So how do you package a story like that, for mass consumption. Oh gosh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um it's it's so tricky because we're as I said, we're just like being bombarded with imagery all the time and so many heartbreaking stories about climate change and so I think that like opportunities to make it beautiful and make it something that that people do want to see even though the storyline may be hard and real um, i think that for me that's where making beautiful images can kind of have like an impact and i think if you can find a a personal thread that relates to like a character or a community versus like a mass regional issue that as as much as we can connect with people those stories become more real to us.
1: Is it safe to say that you're often away from home? So you're traveling on ships, serving as a guide, studying, teaching, and photographing.
0: I have been absolutely on the road, almost living a a sort of nomadic lifestyle um, for years. Last year was the first year that I actually had an apartment in my entire adult life.
1: How do you think that, that lifestyle affects the way you approach the world?
0: Um, I mean, I think there's, there is something to be said for, for seeing places fresh all the time. I mean, I was always moving around. And so if you're coming to a place from somewhere else, there are certain things that you, that you notice when you first get there, that you stop noticing the longer you stay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think as a visual storyteller there are, you know, some benefits to that. And certainly for me traveling in, in the Arctic, gaining a, a, a sort of a little bit at the beginning of a collective sense for things that might be happening over a broader region is valuable. But I feel like I'm kind of at like a turning point where I think it might be nice to live in one place and forge a deeper connection <laughs> with that place.
1: For sure, I, I definitely feel that I grew up traveling for snowboarding from the ages of eleven to seventeen years old, and when I hit seventeen, I was like, "You know what? It would be cool to go to school instead of teaching myself from a cardboard box full of v h s tapes
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially, and I feel like we're in that we're in a moment now with the pandemic and kind of the general state of the world of really. Kind of coming to a different sense of what is really important to us mm-hmm. um, and I think you know family and community and the place you come from it's pretty important,
1: yeah, I think that everyone is is being made to realize that in some capacity, and it's it's really interesting to see because I think that although we are all collectively always living through history, I think that we are even more so right now.
0: Yeah, we realize the extent to which this is history Mm -hmm. and like the implications of what's going on in a way that was much easier to overlook earlier. Um, And I think that we need to be seeing things really clearly right now. We need, especially environmentally, it's urgent and it has been urgent and it continues to be urgent and so like how how can we continue to feel and see and act on that urgency without just being exhausted by that, but rather being like motivated mm-hmm. and empowered to make changes? That's something I think about a lot.
1: When you look back on your travels, what kinds of stories come to mind? Oh, there are so many
0: stories. (laughs) Um, I mean, living on a ship, like exploring and driving a boat in the Arctic and Antarctica every day, so much has happened. But the things that I now nostalgically reminisce on the most um, are just like revisiting places that I I might have gotten to visit, you know, quite a number of times through different seasons and seeing the real extremity of seasonal change, especially in the Arctic with like migrations of life and um, being in a place with sea ice and, and glacier ice. I mean, just the way in which this sort of like sculptural Really intense visual landscape changes so dramatically around you, even like from hour to hour, with like ice moving in currents and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I like to say that the polar regions are the closest that you can really get to visiting another planet without leaving earth, and that otherworldliness um is something that I miss, but then, like for me, working closely with a community of women in in these regions that are stereotypically male dominated um has been really incredible but then i guess to pick out one story and actually it's um the photos that are in the current installation at the anchorage museum are from the last time uh that i went to this community arctic bay or Ikpiarjuk. Um, on the very north of Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. And I chose to go there for the spring, what they call spring camping season, which is like May and June. When kids get out of school, they get out of school in June. And the sea ice is at this like really nice point when seals are really easy to hunt. And the ice is easy to travel on. And it's daylight all the time. And the, the snow goose migration begins. And it's not too cold, and so every year, um, these families that I know will take their children on long snowmobile journeys for days, um, using the sea ice to travel to hunting grounds where their ancestors may have hunted and um, and collected goose eggs since like time immemorial. Mm -hmm. And so, I was. This was in two thousand eighteen. I was invited very last minute, like the night before, to join this family on this 12-day total adventure to pick snow goose eggs. And I think it took us four days to get there, traveling by snowmobile, uh, first over the sea ice and then over the tundra, pulling sleds that had were kind of like little houses that had all our gear in them. And um, But what was really special was that the parents of the couple that I traveled with were leading the way. And for them, they had um, grown up in a semi nomadic pretty traditional lifestyle before moving into a town. And so like their knowledge of the landscape was so vast. And to be there with them when they were passing it on to their children and grandchildren, and everybody was so excited and so happy to be out there, um, it was just this unbelievable thing to witness that I'm so grateful for and to really like come to an understanding of to what degree an Arctic and sea ice landscape can really sustain people and has sustained people for in that region, I think almost 5,000 years and the ways in which that's like still so relevant today. Mm-hmm. Was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's like uh, you were a part of living history.
0: Well, I don't know if I'm a part of it, but I was there, and they welcomed me into their lives and let me be there, which was just a gift, really.
1: Maybe a better way of putting it is you were witness to it.
0: Yeah, I got to witness, you know, some of the last elders in this community who are still raised with those traditions passing on the things that they knew. And um, I wish more than anything in the world that I actually speak Inuktitut in to be able to understand all the things that they had to say, but people were very kind to me to help translate.
1: So when you're shooting in these polar regions, do you have like a mental checklist that you run through or even a physical checklist?
0: In terms of like gear?
1: Yeah, in terms of gear, in terms of, um, and maybe this doesn't, maybe this wouldn't affect you. But if, say, for instance, if I were to go on a four-day snow machine ride, I would have to kind of mentally prepare myself. Like, okay, like, here are some things that could happen. Here's what I need to be prepared if those things happen. And then in addition to that... You know, here's the camera that I need here, are the batteries that I'm go- the extra batteries that I'm going to need, you know, those types of things.
0: Yeah. Um, I think the answer to that question would vary quite a lot, um, depending on who I was going with, mm-hmm. um, in, in Arctic Bay, I just had such total trust in the people that I was traveling with their land skills, um, navigational skills and just otherwise were so so far beyond what mine could ever be (laughs) and so you know i would have i have tons of clothes you know i always have more clothes than everybody else i get cold easily believe it or not and so like staying warm is key having lots of batteries memory cards is key Mm -hmm. um and i typically have like waterproof bags for all my cameras just so they can like weather anything and um food snacks coffee instant Mm. coffee mix to be like poured in your (laughs) water bottle at any moment in time um and then the other year my parents got me a one of those in reach um satellite text beacon things and that was a real moment of like yeah my my parents are trying to keep track of me but it's cool because you can send people you know your your coordinates on a map and have them track you so that's my like one major piece of safety gear is a, a GPS transceiver.
1: And how did that make you feel? Did it did it make you feel like this is unnecessary or <laughs> it's so smart. Did you feel <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm kind <okay>. of <laughs> just
0: joking, you know? It's like you're getting this as a gift. It's like, oh, you're being like geotagged <laughs> or whatever. I don't know if that's the right word. But um but it's a absolutely really smart thing to do. I had um One time that I really went on a big photo expedition by myself um, in Iceland where I had so many near-death experiences, it was like the stupidest thing that I ever did. And so luckily that happened really early on in my career. And I know that, you know, you need to be really prepared and safety in numbers is a real big thing Mm -hmm. because the polar landscape is really unforgiving and you need to know what you're doing before you do it.
1: And that actually, what you just said about your near-death experiences kind of gets to my next question, which is, has there ever been a moment where you're like, okay, I've gone too far. I'm really out of my depth now.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I once decided to do this like five-day mountain trek in Iceland. It's like going from hut to hut um, because I wanted to photograph the landscape. And I was supposed to go with a friend who couldn't go at the last minute. And so I had been planning to like split all my camping gear into two backpacks, right? Plus all my large format camera gear and like film stuff and tripod and everything. And so I ended up thinking, well, I'm tough. I'll just carry it all myself. Mm -hmm. Bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then I showed up at the trailhead for this hike, like alone in Iceland and the trail warden or park warden came and said like a a big storm is coming it's it's september it's fall um we really recommend that you reconsider your plans but i was like a college student and had no money and this was my one chance to do this thing so i was like well i'm tough i'm from alaska i can do this again bad idea (laughs) it was like gale force winds blasting volcanic ash and so it's just like grit in your skin sometimes it was so windy i literally just had to lay down on the ground um and this went on like for days and i couldn't pitch a tent uh luckily there were huts that i like emptied my very meager bank account to stay in it was totally wild and then on like the second morning i was like walking through a a river gully where there's like you know kind of year-round snow in the base and the trail went across this snow and i punched through and fell in a river that was underneath the snow in the gully and it was just like i could die now um this is the stupidest thing um but i didn't die and i made it out of there but because of the weight of my pack i injured my leg and had to walk on crutches for like three months it was just a mess
1: (laughs) So you kind of take that situation into consideration when you're out on these expeditions to hopefully never repeat.
0: Yeah, definitely never repeat. I mean, it doesn't matter what your objectives of any outdoor expedition are. Like your safety and health is really the most important thing. And so pushing anything boundaries for the sake of like getting the shot or whatever Um, If it's endangering yourself or others, it's just stupid. Mm -hmm. So, lesson learned.
1: (laughs) So, after... How many was it? 58 expeditions? Or 55 expeditions, you said? Somewhere around 55, yeah. So, what's next?
0: What's next? Well, I am now um, in graduate school for writing fiction. Which is wild and challenging. Um, So... I need to finish that. (laughs) And then, you know, I am dreaming about long term, large format photo projects that are in Alaska, where I feel I won't talk too much about them, but where I really feel like it is kind of my story to tell. And that I think would lend themselves well to working in that sort of like intuitive long term way that I was describing. So it would be fun to be able to, to do that.
1: Okay, last question. Are you ready? Yep. <laughs> okay, so when you're old and gray, how would you like to look back on your body of work?
0: That's a great question. Um, I would love to publish a bunch of books. That's actually one of my next big goals. Photo books that combine written stories and photographs. And actually, I wanted to mention that one of my, the things that I've been thinking about a lot especially with my work um, in this one community in Canada, is how can I actually involve people's stories together with these pictures? And so I think that combining writing with photographs can be a way to do that. So I don't know, I hope that I have a life where I'm able to to make photographs and, and maybe books that provide a real record of stories that I think are important and that are about place and land and how that's all connected.
1: For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum. With additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.